In our worship today, we come to learn of worship from your word, Heavenly Father. Every one of us has been exposed to false teaching and false example in worship, in some of us for years and years in our background. So we pray now that you will grant us open ears, open hearts, attentive minds, humble spirits, and adoring love and reverence for you. Be glorified in our midst, O Lord. Oh, be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you note the first item on your outline is review, not introduction, and that's just what we're going to do. Uh, If you weren't here last week and didn't hear the sermon, I would encourage you to listen to it. This sermon builds on that. But just to remind some of the highlights we saw last week, uh, approaching the topic of worship, we started with Genesis 1. And from uh, Genesis chapter 1, we saw and reminded ourselves that God created all things from nothing simply by His will, that He spoke everything into existence. And at the moment that everything came into existence, it came into existence according to His plan to carry out His decrees. As we saw in Isaiah 46, He's the one who declares the end from the beginning, saying, all my counsel will be accomplished. Everything exists to carry out the counsel and plan of God. If we could see at a micro-spiritual level, we'd see that every last atom and molecule is stamped with His Lordship and His ownership. And everything exists by Him and for Him and to Him. And all of us face Him. We all depend on Him. You say, well, I don't think the atheists do. The atheists insist that they don't depend on Him. The atheists insist that they do everything for themselves and everything is just a result of what they do. Yes, they do insist that. And they insist that with uh, breath that they've drawn in from God's air into lungs that God created using the brain that God designed and the firing off the synapses that God keeps in existence and that God owns. Uh, Every swallow of liquid, every bite of food, a gift from God, all exists for God. And so what, what worship is, is worship is turning to that God and giving Him praise and honor for who He is and what He does. That's what worship is. And so worship is all about Him, as indeed all creation is about Him. Worship is for Him, as indeed all creation is for Him. And worship is directed by Him, as indeed all things are directed by Him. And we saw that tracing through the Old Testament. We, we went to um, Exodus 3, where uh, Moses turned aside to see this bush that was burning and blazing, but, but the bush was not being burnt up. This was a manifestation of God and His glory. And as he approached, God said, take the sandals off your feet. You approach me on my terms, not on your terms. This is holy ground, marked as holy by my presence. I own this. And Moses was filled with fear at that sight. And so then we move forward to uh, Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20 and reminded ourselves of the Ten Commandments. The first ones were, you'll have no other gods before me. And you'll make no images to worship. And you won't take my name in vain. And with these words, God eliminates all worship of all other things in all other ways, except worship of Him in His way. Not taking His name in vain according to our imagination, but taking His name according to His revelation of Himself. And so Exodus 20 led us to Exodus 33, 34, where God saw Moses' glory... uh, 
And I got that exactly backwards. Moses saw God's glory, and that's a very important distinction. Moses saw God's glory passing before him, and God declared the name of the Lord, and God declared who he was, that he was compassionate and merciful, uh, and that he was uh, sovereign in his grace and mercy, and Moses was uh, overwhelmed at the sight of God. And this God then proceeded to show Moses uh, how he was to be approached and how he was to be worshipped. We looked at some of the chapters where God uh, gives instructions for building the tabernacle where he would be worshipped. And what did we see again and again? God's command telling Moses he was to make everything how? According to the pattern that was shown him. According to God's command. According to God's express directions. And then we saw a number of notes saying that Moses did exactly that. We came to the next to last chapter, chapter 39, where all the tabernacle was assembled according to the Word of God. And what happened then? The glory of God came down. And God revealed Himself there. And God was worshipped there when He'd been approached according to His Word. And, and then we went into the book of Leviticus. We looked at Leviticus 8 and 9, preparing the priests for their priestly worship. And again and again, once, once more we saw that all this was done according to the Word of God, according to the direction of God. And once again, at the end of chapter 9, we saw that when they uh, dressed themselves according to God's Word and they brought the worshiping, uh, the, uh, the sacrifices and offerings according to God's Word, what did we see? The glory of God and the fire of God come forth to conceive these, to, to, to consume these, uh, these, these uh, items. And this all again confirmed to us that God was to be worshipped on His terms and His way. This is all a positive example of how to do it. But then right away there was this jarring example of exactly how not to do it. Who did we see? We saw uh, Aaron's two sons stepping forward and bringing strange fire. They were priests, so yes, they were in the right tribe. Yes, indeed. Right descendants. Yes, yes. Right uniforms. Yes, but they did not worship God according to His Word. They brought strange fire. They had a creative idea, and they thought they would go after their creative idea. And God immediately showed what He thought of that. What did He do? Consumed them with fire. They died instantly. Their uniforms were spared, but they were burnt up. Amazing. Like they were microwaved. But they wanted to be uh, creative, and instead they were cremated. And this uh, underlined the fact that God is to be approached on His terms, by His revelation, in His way. That is what pleases Him. A loving heart of faith approaching God, the true God, on the terms of the true God. This delights God, this pleases God. But the opposite is the idea of approaching Him, if at all, on our terms, in our way, which ends up not being worship of God at all, but really is worship of ourselves. And when you take people like Aaron's sons and you take them for years adding their own ideas and their own opinions and their own creativity, and this piles deeper and deeper and thicker, what you have there is you have a ball of tradition completely concealing true worship. And that is the scene on which Jesus comes in the gospel in chapter 15. And that's where the Pharisees are coming from. They're approaching him from the perspective of 
centuries of accretion of tradition that has hidden what it is to worship God. And that is repellent to God, and that is exactly what our Lord is speaking to here. So, now this week we're going to focus on Jesus' words about worship, and we will see true worship contrasted against its opposite, and by that we'll learn a lot more about what true worship really is. So, uh, Roman numeral one, focusing on our Lord's words, we're going to see the blight of phony worship, P-H-O-N-Y, phony worship, fake pretend worship, worship that isn't real worship, and it's a blight. It's, it's a disaster. It's something dead and smelly in God's sight and in his nostrils. So, we're going to see a couple of things about, uh, that characterize phony worship. Letter A, uh, one thing that characterizes phony worship is that it isn't all an act. It's all an act, A-C-T. Where do I get that from? I get that from Jesus' words. In Matthew 15, 7, he says, hypocrites, he says, hypocrites. And I remind you that Greek word, hypocrites, it means an actor. It was used of an actor who would literally put a mask on. They didn't do makeup. Instead, they used masks. And there was a big theater near where Jesus grew up in Sephoris. A big theater was built by Herod. And Jesus might have seen these masks and might have seen these actors. And so to appear to be what they weren't, they'd put these masks over their face. And he uses that word to describe the Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. And what's he saying? He's saying, you're phony. It's an act. What you want people to think you are is not what you really are. Hypocrites, he calls them. So, number one then, it's all an act. And it shows itself in the fact that the lips bring honor. Verses 7 and 8. A. Hypocrites aptly did Isaiah prophesy concerning you, saying, this people with its lips honors me. Now there's the characteristic of hypocritical worship. Phony worship. Worship that is just an act. They've got their written prayers. Perhaps handed down for generations. They've got their written confessions. They've got pious words. They say them all exactly. And oh yes, the words sound very holy. They sound like words of great devotion. This is a striking thing when you look at uh, services sometimes of religions that are very formal. You look at an Episcopalian service, an Anglican service, some of these services that have a liturgy all written out. And these are unregenerate, God-hating men and women conducting these, but they're saying words that are beautiful, and they are pious, and the words are God-honoring. But the people who say them don't mean a bit of it. They don't mean a syllable of what they're saying. But the act is in place. This is something the Bible talks about a lot. Paul does in 2 Timothy, uh, yeah, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, where he's warning about uh, people in the last days. And in 2 Timothy 3, 5, He refers to them as holding to a form of godliness, but denying its power. A form of godliness, a formulation, a system of godliness, but it's something they deny the power of. It has no impact on their lives. It's a mask. It's something they hold up to give an impression on people that's a false oppression. Jesus dwelt on this quite a bit. He ripped masks off all the time. I think that's probably what he was most hated for. He exposed them. He took the, the, the pious veneer off of them and showed their hearts. So, like in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, the beginning of it, chapter 5, verse 20, 
Remember, he said he didn't come to tear down the law and the prophets. In fact, he came to fulfill them. But then he says in verse 24, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Your righteousness must surpass, Jesus says. And I'm sure a lot of people hearing that would have thought, oh boy, what am I supposed to do now? They're the holiest people I know. How am I supposed to be holier than they are? Uh, But it was the righteousness that they boasted that Jesus was targeting. That righteousness was not a genuine righteousness. It was righteousness that was an act. It was a put on. It was a disguise. It was wrong as to its heart and as to its foundation. He pointed to its heart in in chapter 6, verse 1, where he says, Beware of doing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward before your Father who is in heaven. That was Matthew 6, verse 1. Doing your righteousness to be noticed by men. And this was their, mo- their motivation. To, for people to see huge phylacteries and broad uh, edges to their robes and acts of great piety and godliness. But it was all a show for men. It was not worship of God. So that's the heart of it, and that's what's wrong with that righteousness. The heart is a phony, superfit. And that's what he's doing in chapter 5 when he keeps saying, you've heard it was said, but I say to you. You've heard it was said, but I say to you. And they had worked out a way of working out God's law in a superficial way where they could check the boxes and still have hearts filled with lust and hatred and murder and envy and avarice. Hearts weren't touched, but boy, oh boy, they put on a good show. So the heart was wrong and the foundation was wrong. In chapter 7, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me pause you there. Is it wrong to say to Jesus, Lord, Lord? Let's make that a real question. Is it wrong to say to Jesus, Lord, Lord? Is that what he's faulting? The fact that they say, Lord, Lord. No, it's in the words that follow. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. You can, treat, you can train a parrot to say, Lord, Lord. Lips say, Lord, Lord. But the heart shows in the life. And those who do the will of his Father are those who, like we've been studying, learn his word love him, and respond according to his word. And so he says, then in verse 26, that was 721, but now verse 26, and everyone hearing these words of mine and not doing them will be compared to a foolish man. There's the hypocrite. He hears Jesus' words. Perhaps he says, Lord, Lord, but he does not carry them out. And he builds his house on sand, and when judgment falls, he falls. It's the one who hears his words and does them builds on a a firm foundation. So in this hypocritical worship that is just lips that bring honor, it's wrong as to its heart, it's wrong as to its foundation. That's how hypocrisy shows. Lips bring honor, number two, but the heart is distant. Hypocrisy shows that while the lips bring honor, the heart is distant. Verse 8b, quoting Isaiah, but their heart is far distant from me. It's a couple of Greek words, either one of which would have said it was distant. (laughs) So he's not just saying it's far away, he's saying it's far, far away. Their hearts are far, far away from me. Remember how he described the human heart later in this chapter. Chapter 15, verse uh, 18, but the things going out of the mouth 
uh, come out from the heart, and those do defile. For from the heart come out wicked arguments, murders, adulteries, immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, blasphemies. It's these hearts, these unconverted, unregenerate, unsaved hearts that put on a show of religion, but they're far from God. And they content themselves with layers and layers of self-comforting tradition that they don't approach the presence of God at all. This is what the heart of all unsaved men has been since the fall, since Genesis 3. This is the heart of all men. In Genesis 6, 5, then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The exception was Noah who found grace in God's eyes. But the hearts of men were as this describes, Rak, rak, hol hayom, only evil all the day. And don't think, well, that was that generation, because then you can read again in chapter 8, when Noah has survived the flood, and only Noah and his family, and God says again that that's the state of the human heart. And the Bible echoes this again and again through its pages. That's the natural setting of the heart. The natural setting of the heart is far distant from God and offensive to God. And it can't be saved by changing manners and externals and doing the right rituals and checking the right boxes. It's the heart that must be changed. So we read in Second uh, Chronicles twelve fourteen about Rehoboam, Solomon's son, who heard good doctrine from his dad, though he saw a terrible example in his later years. Rehoboam did evil, Second Chronicles twelve fourteen says. Why did he do evil? Rehoboam did evil, the text says, because he did not set his heart to seek Yahweh. So his heart was at its default mode. And what is the default mode? Offensive to God, straying from God. And because his heart was unchanged, his life was evil. That's how the heart is. The heart is distant unless something changes. What is it to worship with a distant heart? Well, let's see. To worship with a distant heart is, listen, it is unhumbled worship. It is unconvicted worship. It's unconverted worship. Somebody who thinks he can come as he is and remain as he is. Unchanged. And God had better accept it on his terms. Unhumbled. Unconvicted unconverted, a person who's never felt the depth of his sin or the weight of his guilt before God or seen the holiness of God and how awful his condition is before God. It is unhumbled. It is unconvicted. It is unconverted. It is self-confident and self, self-centered. And this is very subtle. Nobody's going to say this to you in their words, but you'll hear it when somebody says, well, that worship didn't work for me because I didn't feel this or that. Well, you have a lot of confidence in your ability to judge worship then, don't you? You can judge a worship by the way you feel. That's a lot of self-confidence. You didn't even have to crack a Bible to think about that worship. You didn't have to look at one verse in the Word of God. You just had to look at your feelings. That's a lot of confidence. And it's ungodly. Self-confidence, self-centered. That worship didn't do anything for me. Was it supposed to? Is that what worship is? Are we here to do something for ourselves? But did we just spend the, all this time looking and seeing the fact that worship is for God? It centers on God. And, and let me just sneak this in beside. You might be thinking, and, and, and very understandably, but isn't worship good for us? Well, yes, it is. It's the best thing for us. But that's as a side effect. Because we can't worship in a way that is primarily self-seeking. It's like what Jesus says. Maybe I should just stick with that. What does he say? 
He who seeks his soul, what? Will lose it. But he who loses his soul for my sake in the gospel, what? Will find it. So when we seek worship for ourselves, this is not worship. And it doesn't do us good, really. But when we seek God, you see, remember, that's what everything's created for. That's what we're created for. We're created to seek God, to depend on God, to look to God. That's the way we're really made. Now, we don't go that way naturally because of sin. But sin wrecks us. Sin ruins us. Sin makes us mad and stupid. But God brings us to himself. And so what worship is, is worship is about God. And as a blessed bonus, it's the best thing for us. When we forget about ourselves and look to God, listen to his word. But that's... um, that's an aside, and that's at absolutely no extra charge. So, worship with a distant heart is self-confident and self-centered, and it is distracted, it's unfocused, it's shallow. Shiny objects do distract us, and we bring shiny objects in our heart, don't we? Our heart's full of shiny objects and full of distractions. See, this is why we all make it a practice to be sure to be here early and not straggling late, to, to be here well before the service starts so that we have time to sit down and do what Rehoboam didn't do, set our heart to seek the Lord. We know the, all of the distractions and shining objects in our hearts, so we know it, it takes a second that worship is not a toggle switch, it's not a light switch. You can't get your head in the right place at once. We, we take a few moments to pray and to turn our hearts around and to remind ourselves why we're really here, what we're really looking for, what worship is about, so that we can get, like we say, get our head in the game. In this case, though, get our heart in the game. False worship is, is shallow and it's distracted, it's unfocused. Well, this is all a picture of what false worship is. It is phony. And secondly, it is futile. Letter B, it is futile. F-U-T-I-L-E. Phony worship is futile. What does Jesus say? Quoting from Isaiah, he says, but futilely do they show me reverence by teaching for teaching men's rules. Well, I want you to notice before we move on that they do teach. Number one, they do teach. They teach by teaching the teaching. Uh, sorry. Before, by teaching for teachings men's rules. We say, well, yes, that's fairly obvious. I, I know the scribes and the Pharisees taught. They had a lot of doctrines, and they did teach. Yes, yes, indeed, they did. But you might think, well, there's lots of churches that, that don't teach. There's traditions that don't teach. Like, for instance, the Latin tradition, the Roman Catholic Church, where the service is entirely in Latin, and nobody in the congregation speaks a word of Latin. Uh, but but uh, they, they're not teaching. Well, yes, they are. They're very powerfully teaching. What are they teaching? You don't need to understand God's Word, you sheep. You don't need to know anything about what God's Word says. Priests will do it for you. All you need to do is do what you're told, stand when you're told, sit when you're told, kneel when you're told, eat the wafer when you're told. Do what the priest tells you because he's got it nailed down, and you'll be all right with God. But you don't need to engage God's Word. You don't need to understand. You see, it's teaching powerfully. Every religious service teaches in some way. And what they teach is they teach men's rules. So they do teach, number two, but it's just tradition. It's just tradition. And what is tradition? It's, as you probably know in the Bible, it's not used quite the way that we use it. We just use tradition to mean well, this is the way we've always done it. It's close to that. It's, it's, this is, it means way back here, Rabbi so-and-such had an idea and he taught it 
and people accepted it, and it became a law. So it was an idea set on the Word of God, but it wasn't the Word of God. But it got pasted on top of the Word of God. And then somebody had an opinion about his opinion, and that got pasted on top of that. And somebody had an opinion on that opinion, and it got pasted onto that. And after the passage of decades and centuries, the original Word of God is long gone. It's covered by all these traditions that are handed on, handed on. Remember I taught you that they believed that at the same time that God's Word was given on Mount Sinai, this oral tradition was given. Not written down, but it was passed on from generation to generation. might surprise you to hear the Roman Catholic Church believes much the same thing uh, about their church history. They believe that that oral tradition passed on from the apostles. Not written down. But that is where they get all of their little special things that take them so far away from the Word of God. So this is men's rules, and it has a long and storied history, this way of worshiping God. It goes all the way back to Genesis 4, where Cain brings vegetables to God because it seems like the right thing to do to him. And Scripture says he had a heart of unbelief. He was not motivated by faith. He worshiped the way he thought best, And when God didn't accept it, was he struck down and humbled in repentance? Oh, he was angry with God and angry with his brother, whose offering in faith God did accept. Yes, it goes back. It has a long tradition. Tradition does. Uh, Cain approaching God according to his own ideas with vegetation. Nadab and Abihu having this fantastic improvement on God's worship in Leviticus 10, being burnt to a crisp for it. The uh, Korban law that we're looking at here in Matthew 15, which I explained to you a bit back, the idea that anybody could just pronounce something that he owned Korban, and then he he couldn't use it to help his parents anymore because it was dedicated to God. He could keep using it, but his parents couldn't use it, who needed it from him. So, Scripture says, honor your father and mother, but he has a loophole tradition made for him. He could pronounce it Korban. And then not only couldn't he help them, he mustn't help them because he can't break his vow. Why, that'd be sinful, you see. And that's how tradition works. And then it goes on into centuries and centuries of Roman Catholic tradition or Greek or Roman Orthodox tradition where just layers and layers ultimately completely hide what the Word of God says and in fact contradict what the Word of God says. And we have this same uh, uh, fact today and tradition today. Uh, The purpose-driven church, the seeker-sensitive church, the woke church, the gay-affirming church, LGBTQ++++ affirming church. Uh, These are all human traditions that have been tacked onto the worship of God and the heart of what God's Word says is completely gone, completely dead, completely contradicted. And perhaps our most powerful tradition, at least in American evangelicalism, is the tradition of following your heart, trusting your feelings. You say, well, that's what Hollywood says. Yeah, I know. And a lot of the church says the same thing. How many people have come into a service like this, heard the Word of God, sung the praises of God, and gone out and said, well, that's not what I'm looking for? Because they're looking for a feeling. They're looking for an experience. They're being looked made to feel a certain way like they go to movies for. And this is the great shift. I've talked to you about this before, but it's been a while. Seeing Christians not as disciples and slaves of God, but as what? Consumers. Customers. You give the customer what he wants. That's how you bring them in, and that's the greatest thing. Not faithfully to serve God, but to be big. Because you know, 
a big church makes a big difference. And they all want to be big churches. And that's the price you pay. You've got to give the customers what they want. Be consumer-driven. And this is all in the area of tradition. This is all not about worshiping God. Paul has some choice words about it, both Gentile and Jewish traditionalism. He gets into Gentile traditionalism in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossae, there was a, a single false teacher who had a sort of a mix and match of some Jewish doctrines, some Greek philosophy, and some his own special sauce. He said that he had visions and he had insights. And so he taught a diet, you know, don't touch, don't eat, don't taste, don't handle. He had a calendar. He had all sorts of special things that set Christians off from Christians, none of which is according to God's Word. And Paul says, why do you do that? Because what you're doing, in not pursuing Christ, but pursuing these teachings, what you're doing is you're holding fast, not to the head, but he says, to the commands and teachings of men, Paul says. Same thing Jesus is warning about here. And the Jews had their own special version of it too. Paul warns about that. 1 Timothy 1, chapter 3 and 7. 3, 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 to 7. He tells Timothy, this is why I left you in Ephesus. To warn certain men not to teach heterodoxy, not to teach differently. And what, what marked their bad teaching? Well, that they were focusing on myths and endless genealogies. See, there's Jewish apocrypha and stories and kind of Jewish fan fiction to fill in all the gaps in the Old Testament, tell you things about Abraham, not Scripture, about Joshua, about everybody else, and making up characters and making up angels. And this was what they were really fascinated with. Scripture didn't have quite enough for them, so this is what they were really devoted to. And Timothy was to tell them to cut it out. Myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the stewardship from God which is by faith. And again in 2 Timothy chapter 4, warning about the end times, he says people in the last days will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to what? Myths. To myths. To these traditions. And finally in Titus 1.13 and 14, Paul's solution for the bad state of affairs there in Crete was for the elders to reprove them severely, reprove these false teachers severely. Listen, to reprove them severely, sharply, cuttingly, the word means, so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. I wonder if somebody saw an elder reprove someone sharply for this. He'd probably feel sorry for the guy and not glad the elder was being faithful. But you see, this is a big, big thing with God, that he not be approached, which is not approached, by myths and speculations, but by his word. The heart and core of this futile worship is just this. I can put it this way. I think I can put it very concisely. The heart and core of it is God's word is not sufficient for me, and it's not compelling to me. It's not enough for me, and it's not powerful enough for me. So I can, and I may, and in fact I must, customize it. I must personalize it. I must make it the way that meets my needs as I diagnose them. I'll make my own medicine, and I'll take it. I'll make my own worship, and I'll do it. And if I can use an IT term, it treats Scripture as if it were open source. All right, I was going to listen to see who were engineers by the chuckling. What is, what is open source? 
Well, it's, it's something that people, anybody can write into the code. Anyone can change the code and contribute to it. It's not like you get Windows and you get Windows, you know, and, and you can do some customization, but it's what Windows has. But other systems, like I, I think Linux and others, can be modified. And, and so this treats the Word of God as if it were open source, as if we can get under the hood and change the parts that we don't like and put in the parts we do like. And uh, we've seen this is not what worship is about. It's not what knowing God is about. It's uh, just tradition. And so, number three, this teaching is in vain. <coughs> Pardon me. It's in vain. Jesus quotes from Isaiah, but futilely do they show me reverence. Futilely, vainly, to no effect. And as I said last week, this worship never gets past the ceiling if you think of it that way. Because it's not what God calls for. It's not what God accepts. It's not what He looks for. It's not worship of God. Might as well set up a massive mirror because that's what it's really all about. It's not about God. And more to the point, it's more about me, my perceived needs and my ideas, my notions. It does not please God. It does not bring God's blessings. And it violates the third commandment. In that it takes God's name, yes, but it takes it in vain. Taking God's name in vain is not just a matter of, of what you shouldn't have said when you hit your thumb with a hammer. Uh, it's a matter of taking his name in vain, of saying, I'm worshiping God, but you're not worshiping God. That this is service of God, but it's not service of God. I stamp God on it, but it's not what God called for, and it's not what God wants. You see, it's tradition, it's me, it's will worship, it's just self. So that's what not to do. This is what Jesus excoriates. So what should we do? Well, I think we, we have a good guide if we take the not to do's and turn them on their head. So I'm just going to do that. Just turn the knots on its head. And num Roman numeral 2, talk with you about the blessing of true worship. The blessing of true worship. And here I made a typo. The, most, the worst typos for me are the ones that still spell a word, but it's the wrong word, you know? If you're meaning to write cat, but instead you type XPQL exclamation point, you, you see that right away. That's not a word. <laughs> but as in this case, I meant to write its, but I wrote is three times. So letters A and C and D are all supposed to be its, I-T-S, and not is. But you can put a happy face by B because it's right, but not A, C, and D. So first of all, the blessings of true worship its core and content are God's Word. That's the core and content of true worship. It's God's Word. Now, Jesus makes this very plain, doesn't he, in this section? Chapter 15, you go back and remember they say to him, why do your disciples violate the tradition of the elders? And Jesus just scalds that one right back at them and he says, well, what, for what reason do you yourselves violate the commandment of God on account of your tradition?" That was the issue to him. God said something and they wiggled away around it by their tradition. So what does that tell us? The commandment of God is what matters in approaching God. The actual word and commandment of God. And so he says in verse 6, you nullified the word of God for the reason of your tradition. Well, is he saying that's a good thing or a bad thing? Here's a simple real question. Is, is he saying nullifying the word of God by tradition is a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's a bad thing. So what should we do? We should honor the Word of God. We should 
reverence the Word of God. We should learn and embrace and follow the Word of God. Be guided by the Word of God. That's what he's saying. And remember, he made that point in the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, you, 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 whoever keeps and does these commandments that he's teaching is the one who will be great in the kingdom of God. And, and he, he keeps taking them back to the spirit of the law. That it's not just a matter of not plunging a knife into somebody's heart, but hating people and committing adultery in the heart and, and breaking our word and so forth. He gets back to the heart of the word of God. Worshiping by human tradition is futile, but worshiping by God's word is real. Worshiping God's word is, by God's word is blessed. It's what pleases God. It's what gets past the ceiling and connects us to God in worship to him. So we're taught that we must seek and learn God's word. The, the priority in worship must be God's word. And so if, if somebody comes to a service like this and clearly doesn't ever mean to come back and says to you, well, the teaching was sound, but you should say, let me stop you right there. <laughs> let me stop you right there. What do you think that worship is? What verses are you getting that from? Because true worship centers around the Word of God, honoring the Word of God, learning the Word of God, embracing the Word of God doing the Word of God. And I dare say, most. this is where I started last week, that most people who go to church, that's not even a category to them. I think, I think wouldn't you say, you, have you not found this, that most people just think they intuitively know what worship should be, or a church service, what it should be. They've been taught. They've been conditioned. They approach it as consumers, but they don't think of it in scriptural terms. They, they, in fact, I dare say, and I'm saying this to be fair to them, really, I don't even think that's a category in their head. I don't think that's a question they ever ask, or they wouldn't be going where they're going. They wouldn't be filling these massive arenas that they're filling. If they ever stopped and asked, what does God say about worship? And worship is centered around God's word. Jesus says so. Secondly, true worship. Let's look at true worship's heart. Its core and content is God's word. Its heart is genuine faith. Now, what were their hearts? Their hearts were dead. Their hearts were corrupt. Their hearts were duplicitous. That's what it means to be a hypocrite. They had an agenda in what they projected, but their hearts, as God said, was far from them. God has a remedy for that, but of course it has to come from God. We can no more change our hearts than we can grab the bottoms of our shoes and lift ourselves two feet off the ground. So we read in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, as a prophetic promise, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed to love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. This is why we hope for the, and expect the conversion of Israel one day. Because there's a promise in several places. God will circumcise their heart. What does that mean? That's a picture of regeneration, of being born again. God will do this to them, though. It won't come from within them. So they will love God with their heart when God circumcises their heart. And more detail is given in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. Now listen, Ezekiel 36 Verses 25 through 27. Hear this. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I'm not talking about physical uncleanness, but spiritual uncleanness. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you'll be careful to do my judgments. So the problem is the heart, and God promises that for his elect, he will remedy that by taking out their unregenerate hard heart of stone and give them a new heart and put his very Holy Spirit in their hearts. And it's that that Jesus is referring to in John chapter 3 when very religious Nicodemus comes to him with flattering words and Jesus cuts right to the chase, tells him he needs to be born again. John 3 verse 3, truly, uh, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. You won't understand it, you won't see it, you won't experience it unless you're born again. And then he expands in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. This is just what we read about in Ezekiel 36, the water that cleanses from idol worship and the Holy Spirit, which gives us a new heart. And a heart of worship, a heart that loves God, a heart that goes after God. That's essential for worship. An unregenerate person can't worship God. Only a regenerate, only a born-again person can worship God. And so that's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, he says, we are the circumcision. Now remember, think back to Deuteronomy 30. Yahweh will circumcise your hearts. That's what he's referring to. We're regenerate, he's saying. In other words, we're born again. We're the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God. That's true worship. And boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now there's a good verse to lay to heart to think about worship. We're the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. What does that say? First of all, uh, we, we worship in the Spirit of God because we've been born again, and He's come to live in our hearts and make us a temple and build each Christian church into a temple in which God is approached in worship. And we boast in Jesus Christ, meaning we're not bringing offerings and, and sacrifices and gifts hoping we're going to buy God's favor. We're not trying to uh, uh, plaster over and paper over our sins by piling religious works and penance and confession and acts of contrition and, and uh, uh, amidst both and, 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 and whatnot to try to paper this all over, we don't boast in anything we do. We boast in Christ Jesus. We know that we're accepted by God because of Jesus Christ, because of His having atoned for our sins, because of His having died for our sins and risen from the grave to show our justification, His ever living to make intercession for us. We boast in Christ Jesus. Everything we have is through and in and because of Christ Jesus. Amen? That's the boast of the worshiper. A never me. Never me. I don't come boasting in anything. i got nothing to boast of. I have things to repent of. Nothing to boast of. One thing to boast of. And it's not a thing. It's Jesus Christ. Boast in Christ Jesus, he says, and put no confidence in the flesh. Well, as I said just a few moments ago, the person who approaches God according to tradition is putting a great deal of confidence in the flesh. That this word didn't give him enough to know how to approach God, he had to add a whole bunch of stuff to it. And he's confident that he was a good enough judge to do that. And that's exactly what Paul says, don't do. We don't put confidence in the flesh. We don't know any better, (laughs) if you want to put it that way, we don't know any better than to approach God by his word. And that puts it exactly right. I confess before you absolutely, boldly, completely, without reservation, I don't know any better about how to approach God apart from what his word says. I don't know one thing about it apart from what his word says, and neither do you. And that's what characterizes true worship. 
It is, its core and content is God's word, and it's motivated by genuine faith out of a born-again heart. Because we believe when God gives us new life. As John says, that everyone who believes has been born again. Faith is a fruit of regeneration. And then letter C, its aim is to draw near. The aim of true worship is to draw near. Aim, A-I-M, is to draw near. That's what Jesus uh, said, that, uh, that they do wrongly in quoting Isaiah. He says, uh, they draw near, uh, their heart's far distant. They, draw, they, they come and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far distant. But the aim of true worship is to draw near. And this is the heart of true faith through all the ages. You see this very vividly in a contrast, say, between uh, Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have eaten of the forbidden fruit, and when God appears, what do they do right away? They flee. They hide. They want no part of Him. That's sin. That's what sin does in our heart, and that's our natural setting. That's our default state to want to draw far from God, if you will. But the regenerate heart, the born-again heart, the saved heart of faith wants to draw near. And you see that in the next chapter uh, where uh, Abel draws near to worship God in faith by his sacrifice, chapter 4. You see that in chapter 5 where we read in verse 24 that Enoch walked with God. He didn't walk away from God like, like the unbelieving uh, souls, but he walked with God. We hear that in David's prayers, the prayers of the psalmists. Uh, Psalm thirty-eight twenty-one: Do not forsake me, O Yahweh. O my God, do not be far from me. This worshiper doesn't want distance from God. He wants the presence of God. And you, you see in the, oh, I forget the number, I think it's the 13th Psalm, where uh, in, in several places, don't be far from me. How long will you stand distant from me? Can't bear the distance of God. Wants the presence of God. Psalm 15 wants to be in the tent of God. Psalm 23 wants to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the heart of faith, the heart of the believer. Psalm 73, 28. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Psalm 73, 28. The nearness of God is my good. I have set Lord Yahweh as my refuge. And what's a refuge? A place you run away from and try to stay distant from? A refuge is what you run into and hide in. And that's the heart of the believer, wanting to run to God, draw near to God. Psalm 105, verse 4, Inquire of Yahweh and His strength. Seek His face continually. So this is real worship, to want to draw near to God in true faith with a regenerate heart, on God's terms. The goal is to draw near to God. And so we see this in in Hebrews 10, and I want to step off a second before uh, we read this, because I'm going to read... No, you know what? Let me read it first, and let me talk about it a bit. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
that, that imagery from Ezekiel 36 again. Let us draw near, it says. And in James chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God and what? He will draw near to you. Now, think about this with me. What do we call the Bible? We call the Bible the word of good answer. Good answer. I don't need to quit. <laughs> it's the word of God. And so, who is it that inspired the writers to command us to draw near, to come near, to draw near to God? Who inspired them to say that? God the Holy Spirit. So this is God saying to you and me, Christian friend, draw near to me. I will draw near to you. Draw near to me. Come near through the blood of Christ. Isn't that a wonderful thought? I mean, we think, boy, I think the, the unbeliever thinks he'd be doing God a great favor if he, if he believed in him and came close to him. Well, we wouldn't be doing God a great favor, bringing him all our defilement and ugliness and awfulness. But God has come up with a plan by which he can cleanse all of his people's sins and give them new hearts, wash them clean. To what end? That they can come near to him, just as close as they can. What does he say in Exodus 19? Why did he bring Israel out of Egypt and bear them on eagles' wings? To where? To myself, he says. And that's the plan of redemption. For God to redeem a people to himself. And so now he calls us to draw near. What a wonderful thing. It's all to my benefit. And yet to know that God wants me. He commands me. He invites me to draw near. When I come here, I'm, I'm, I'm not imposing on him. I'm not misusing his precious time. He's said to me, I've got an open door. You just walk in. I want you to walk in. It's best for you if you walk in. Draw near. And that's what worship is. That's the, the heart of worship. That's the aim of worship. The aim is to draw near to God. Not to create a feeling or experience for myself, but to draw near to God. And as I said, the irony is, that is the greatest blessing to me. Drawing near to God is the best thing for me. Amen? But the aim is to draw near to God. Finally, what is the lips of true worship? Letter D, it's lips, true praise. Let's look at two verses. Turn to Ephesians 5 with me. Close with these two verses. Or end on them, I should say. Turn to Ephesians 5. A lot of you know everything about Ephesians because you went through our, our sermon series on Ephesians, so you'll already know all this. But Ephesians 5, verse 18 and 19 is where we'll look. Do not get drunk with wine. Check, I understand that, for that is dissipation. You'll ruin and waste your life if you get drunk. But be filled with the Spirit. Ah, the opposite of being drunk with wine is being filled with the Spirit. But wait, there's a comma, not a period. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, and so forth. The first showing he gives of being filled with the Holy Spirit of God is singing God's praises in doctrinally rich, Christ-honoring songs that 
edify each other, but also express praise and thanksgiving for God. That's what the Spirit of God moves us to. Chapter 2 says he's building us into a holy sanctuary where God lives. And what happens in the sanctuary of God? What do we just see in Revelation 5? What's going on in heaven all the time? Worship and praise. And what does the Holy Spirit move the hearts of people who he fills to do? Worship and praise. Sing worship and praise. Well, you say, I don't have a very good voice. I say, what did you read about voice here? <laughs> where, did you get, where did you get quality of song or larynx? <laughs> That's not, what's the instrument that we, that we need to use? Well, it's our hearts. In fact, um, he says, uh, making melody with your heart. It, it's not so much whether your voice is in tune, it's whether your heart's in tune that matters in worship. So likewise, turn to Colossians chapter 3 with me. See, friend, we, we joke about it, and some people say, I, I can't carry a tune in a bucket and so forth. But I would, I would say seriously, to give a serious answer to what's usually a humorous thing, well, who made your voice, though? Who gave you the voice you have? Whether you have a lovely singing voice or kind of a, a desperate singing voice. What, who gave you that voice? That would be the Lord. Do you think he wants to hear you use the voice he gave you to sing his praises? Do you think he says, oh, no, please don't? Oh, you're not even close to that note. Oh, no, don't do that thing to that song. No, he doesn't. It delights the Father to hear his children sing, whatever our abilities are. Now, maybe some of us should sing less loud than others. That's another thing. But with all our hearts, with our hearts, okay? Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, I've pointed this often, and, and many read this verse, and they say, yes, I must have personal devotions. Yes, you must have personal devotions. That's not what this is about. This is about church worship. This is about assembled worship. What's supposed to happen in a church service according to God? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And as I say, I think every time we read this, I say in some churches, if it just dwell there at all, it'd be a big change. But it's not supposed to be just at all. It's supposed to be richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And how does that show itself? With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. That's the worship that pleases God. What kind of songs? Country, rock, classic, western? Doesn't say anything about that. What kinds of songs? Ones filled with the word of Christ. Ones that exalt Christ and edify the saints. Ones that lift up God's praises. Like we saw in Revelation 5. Songs like that. Songs that give honor and glory and praise to God. With gratefulness in your hearts to God, he says. So, let's wrap this up then. True worship is just what Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and following about, said about. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is one, Yahweh is our God. So, to have true worship, first we've got to identify the true God. <laughs> you take one true God. That's essential for worship. And what's next? Verse 5, what does it say? And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And then what happens? Verse 6, And these words which I'm commanding you shall be on your heart. So there's worship. Find God, love God, worship Him according to His word. That's true worship. That's not what they were doing. 
That's what God calls us to do. It has the one God as its object. It's motivated by love from a regenerate heart. And his words dominate it and direct it. So knowing this, taught all this, all of us are empowered and called by God and obligated by God to, uh, since we know what God seeks and know how to draw near and please him, we know it takes personal attention to our hearts and to fill our hearts with his word and set our hearts to worship him and prepare our hearts to worship him. Uh, We are called to do that. Not be hearers of the word, as Jim prayed earlier, but doers of the word. This is God's call to all of us, that he might be glorified and we might be blessed and his word might be held out to a lost world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these powerful, true, and living words of God. We thank you for our dear Savior. We thank you for the fact that he is the truth And he spoke your true words, and they've cut into our hearts. And we pray that you'll help us to remember them, embrace them, make the changes that we need to make, that we might live them. And we pray you'll be glorified by it. In Jesus' name, amen.